Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Scientology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and in this episode, we consider choices. Particularly, we consider the choice of question, of data, and of method in researching cybercrime. To share his insight and experience into these choices is Dr. Asir Maneva, who is a postdoctoral researcher in the field of human factor in cybercrime at both the Netherlands Institute for the Study of Crime and Law Enforcement and the Hague University of Applied Sciences. Dr. Maneva has done some really interesting work applying environmental criminology to the prevention of a variety of cybercrime types, and today we'll be discussing, among other things, how the choice of a particular method can be very important in making research work valuable. Don't forget that we'll also be joined again by Dominic Vogel to answer my silly questions about the work of a cybersecurity consultant. But first, I asked Dr. Maneva what it was about environmental criminology that drew him to the paradigm. My master's thesis supervisor was very influential to me. He's a chief police officer in Spain, and uh, he believed that criminology should be applied. Environmental criminology to him was one of these paradigms that because it is very analytical, it's easily applicable to solve real world problems. And he saw crime as a, a problem to solve. Just being under his tutorship, I think he transmitted to me this idea that it's it's fine if we develop theory. Uh, theories are definitely important and we have to answer the big questions of criminology, like why crime happens and all that. But we also need to implement this practical side of criminology to real world problems. And uh, that's when I started getting interested in routine activities theory, rational choice, crime pattern theory, situational crime prevention, precipitated crime. And then I started applying them to my research and to cybercrime research through my former supervisor, who was already doing some uh, research in cybercrime and also from this environmental criminology perspective. And I guess it was a combination of both influences who got me in this path of applying environmental criminology to solve crime problems that occur in cyberspace. Environmental criminology references physical spaces. How is the transition with taking ideas that are really designed for physical spaces, or at least conceptualized with physical spaces in mind, and bringing them to somewhere virtual? I think that is still the big question. We're still in this phase in criminology in which we are testing whether traditional criminological theories still apply to cybercrime. And there are many people doing research in different areas, testing different theories. In my PhD, I wanted to test the applicability of environmental criminology to different crimes that occur in cyberspace. And uh, to do so, I revisited the propositions of, of the approach. And of course, when you start reading the seminal works in the field, you realize that these theories were developed at a time when crime was physical, right? In the 70s, basically although they were published in the, in the 80s, maybe. So they give great importance to this geographical component. Geography is very important. There's even a, a subfield that is about the geography of crime. Crime mapping was also developed greatly within uh, environmental criminology. And they talk about things like the influence of environmental features, how crime concentrates, and how can we learn from both things to propose practical solutions to solve crime problems. So I think those things are what we can translate, uh, like the broader ideas, the main proposition, we can translate to cybercrime as well, because one could argue that online environments also influence behavior. 
in a way. And cybercrime also concentrates in specific cyber places at specific times or among specific people. Think about prolific offenders or repeatedly targeted victims. So I think that is the link that, that actually leads you to be able to apply environmental criminal theory to cyberspace. And I think the key is overcoming this geographical gap. So stop thinking about environmental criminology as something tied to geographical space and try to revisit the main propositions of the approach because then it makes more sense. And then there are all the things that do not need much more explanation. For example, situational crime prevention measures, they are easily translatable to cyberspace. And the same goes with the situational precipitators of crime. But perhaps a way to link the two together is to think about vandalism and perhaps graffiti and tagging things in space and website defacements. I did research in the in website defacements, not in vandalism, but this is a great example. In physical space, you do graffiti in a wall and the place in which you do the graffiti, well, might be, I don't know, dark, lax, vigilance, guardianship, we would say. It's suitable in a way to become a target of graffiti. You can also think about websites that are not being actively maintained, that are not actively updated, who still have vulnerabilities as places that are more suitable to be targeted by defacers. Because it's easier for them to deface those websites. And script kiddies sometimes carry out website defacements to gain status and show that it can belong to uh, the hacker community and then earn a place in there. So do those concepts apply well to website defacements? I think both uh, apply well, because if we think about, for example, repeat victimization, and you think about what characteristics of places make them more suitable to being targeted repeatedly, for example, a neighborhood or a corner of a neighborhood where drug deals happen, there are more shootings, or there is a narrow passage in which people get robbed often. One of the reasons is because they have specific environmental features that influence the decision-making process of offenders to commit the crime there. Websites also have environmental features that might attract repeated offenders. And in the field of repeated victimizations, there are two explanations that are usually used to explain why crime repeats. And these are the flag explanation and the boost explanation. So the flag explanation basically states that there are characteristics of that place that flag it as vulnerable. And in website defacements, you could think about this website has a vulnerability that has not been patched. If you think about the boost, this explanation is more centering the offender. And it states that because of the previous experience the offender got, it was a very positive experience, low cost, high profit, for example. Then you decide to target the same target again, or in this case, the same website again. For example, in the first place, it didn't cost you much effort to deface a website and you ended up earning a lot of status among the hacker community because then you boasted in forums and people cheered at you. Then you say, yeah, I'm going to try it again. Or maybe other person that learns that you hacked that website easily then decides to hack it as well. This is a way of building traditional environmental community theory when thinking about cybercrime. And if you think of websites as places that have specific environmental features and offenders that can be boosted and influenced by those environmental cues. The research that you did into website defacements, did you find a good link between those things? Were you happy with how that, that research went? There were lights and shadows in the research. On one side, we found very interesting insights with this design that is very clear. We, we test specific premises with empirical data that is unique, cover you know a lot of records. There's a lot of observations, uh, covers a wide range of years. It's about hacking, so very nice. But on the other hand, the data itself has its own limitations. And I, I think research becomes stronger 
if we researchers are able to identify and acknowledge the limitations in our, in our own designs or in the data we use, because that affects the way you interpret the findings and that also affects the way that you develop theory or propose new avenues of future research. And uh, so age, and, and I know this because I was emailing back and forth with the admins of the database, in order to protect some of the domains that appeared in the records, they introduced this one-year uh, restriction period for users so that they weren't able to report that a website that had been defaced in the past year had been defaced again. Because then the website of Zonage became like a sort of a, of a list of suitable domains for hacking or uh, script kiddies and all the defaces. So if you would see that there was a website in that list, you would automatically know that it had been vulnerable in the past. And if the admins hadn't updated the website, the same vulnerability would still be present. So it would become repeatedly victimized. So, so the admins, I think, they did well adding that restriction period. But it, of course, it affects the way we are analyzing our data because we are basically analyzing repeats, right? And what they did was removing repeats, at least part of them. So, for example, we test one of the premises. And the first one is a great share of crime rates is because of repeats. But then we lost a huge, this huge share of repeats. We don't actually know its size, but we can assume that it was big. And this is what triggered the admins to actually introduce this restriction period. So we found that actual repeat defacement rates were much lower than we expected because we hypothesized, okay, they're going to be huge, right? Like like in traditional crime, like it was reported for traditional forms of crime, such as burglary, for example. But then, yeah, I think we found like an average of 7.1% of the whole share of defacement were due to repeats. But then if you consider that they removed most part of it and you still get 7.1% of the whole share of defacements is because of repeats, then the actual figure is much. Well, you, you can't say for sure, but you can easily make the argument that it's likely to be much bigger. And also about the, the second uh, repeat victimization premise that we test, when we apply this rolling period methodology in which you look at the first incident, then roll some period of time until the next repeat appears, we would find this one-year gap as introduced by the admins. Of course, you are not able to say, okay, most of them occur you know, within one week, one month, or whatever. But then you realize that some websites had been defaced for seven years straight, even with this one-year restriction period. So you can still see in the data, people continue finding same vulnerabilities over and over, and they continue defacing them over and over, which is also very interesting in terms of um, testing repeat victimization premises. And of course, there's also the limitation that, well, the data we use is self-reported. Even though the admin team at Sonage a renewed registration, they double-check it, and after some time, they approve it or reject it. You still don't know if there was an individual person who committed the hack or it was a group, but only one person reported it. Maybe it was defaced several times, but they only reported one, one incident. There's probably a lot of people that defaced websites and, don't, and just don't report them in Sonage. You don't get the whole picture, but the findings are still very interesting. But of course, you want to know more. And um, one of the things that we've been discussing in, uh, in our research group lately, and I think this is a part of a broader trend in research about online behavior in general, but also in criminology, is that we 
are leaning towards collecting objective measures of behavior when we are able to. This is, of course, costly and uh, requires complex setups and requires you to be original and imaginative. But whatever possible, we try to do this. One of your guests, Susanne van de Goede, is also part of our research group, and she's doing very interesting research in uh, collecting objective measures of online behavior. And it's very interesting because there was a recent meta-analysis that was published, and I always reference that when I'm writing a new proposal or, you know, trying to make the point that self-reported online behavior only allows us to get part of the whole picture, but we need something more. All the research that has been carried out to date, or most of it, from cybercriminology tends to collect self-reported measures. And that, that is very nice because that has allowed us to, to get until here, right? We are uh, in the shoulders of giants. But from now on, I think we need to step up and try to make some progress into collecting objective measures of behavior so that we, we get a more accurate picture of what's going on. The meta-analysis that I was referring to, actually, what it states is that online behavior measures are only moderately correlated to actual measures of online behavior. That's an interesting strategy for developing research and research proposals, and I guess research questions, is to take the ideas from environmental criminology and then find areas where you're able to gather observational mm-hmm. data in order to test. Would I be right in sort of projecting that that might be a, a way of developing research questions that at least works for you and in terms of having a base perspective and then applying that to different areas where you're able to research? It definitely does. We all have our own views and we all have our own preferences when it comes to research perspectives and frameworks. And for me, the initial way I look at things is always from the environmental criminology lens. And then I think about propositions and then I see, okay, which of these theories, specific hypotheses have not been tested yet in cyberspace? Or how many of these do not have solid evidence yet? Where do we need more research? What do we need to evaluate? And this is where my process of thinking starts. It begins with a crime problem and then boom, environmental criminology lens and then, and then I move on. Uh, although I, I'm not sure that's uh, actually the right thing to do, but it's definitely my process. And, uh, well, I'm happy with it. And this process has brought you to to Google. This process brought me to Google, yeah. So one of the things that I think the field was lacking most was actual tests of the effectiveness of situational crime prevention measures. Maybe we think, and it is very well argued, that some measure will work, but it might be the case that in the end, it doesn't. So building on research from Ben Collier and colleagues from the Cybercrime Center from Cambridge, in which they evaluated different interventions from law enforcement agencies, they stumbled upon one intervention by the NCA, in which they were using online ads in Google to show these online ads deterring online ads, saying something like um, carrying out data stack is illegal, to whoever searched for terms such as data stats or IP stressor or IP booter or whatever. And then the researchers from Cambridge own this vast infrastructure of sensors spread over different countries to measure data stacks with a high accuracy. And they observed that while the trend of data stacks in other countries were constantly increasing, in the UK, it flattened in the duration of the NCA campaign. We think law enforcement agencies don't read papers. That's, that's what I thought, at least. But the guy from the um, team high-tech crime in the Dutch National Police actually do. 
And uh, I was very surprised, positively surprised, uh, when they when they contacted Alfred Leukveld, with whom I just had started working in by, by the end of 2020, because they wanted to implement only an ads campaign similar to the one from the NCA in the UK, but in the Netherlands. And they wanted to do so rigorously. They wanted to implement an evidence-based campaign and then be able to evaluate it. And I thought, chapeau. To them, this is great. You, you didn't see this often. But I was very glad that they wanted to do that and they wanted to take us on board to help them design the, the whole campaign. This is how we ended up designing this project uh, in which we aim to determine first what is the best way of communicating with potential offenders to cut pathways into cybercrime. Inspired by the NCA campaign, we want to look at what is the best way in which we can draft these ads and put them out there so that the message they contain and the text of the landing pages that are linked to the ads are actually the most appealing to these people that is looking for information on DDoS attacks so that they click on them and engage with the text in some way, to spend some time reading the text, click on the videos, images, and all that. So at least we know that the message, this preventive message, reached them. So that's the first step of the project. And in the second one, we would want to test whether these online ads actually work to reduce cybercrime and in, in, in particular to reduce DDoS attacks. And that's what we're doing now. So the first paper is the one that is published in the Journal of Experimental Criminology. And um, in this paper, we found that social messages, those that used social consequences of behavior to invoke potential negative reinforcement from peers, were actually more effective in making people clicking on them than the traditional deterrent message that uses the illegality of conduct to invoke the threat of a legal sanction, uh, which is also interesting because the paradigm that has been used traditionally by law enforcement agencies is, if you do this, we're going to punish you. But actually, in this case, what made people click more was those messages that actually read, so you want your friends to be unable to play games because you play a prank? And I think this is, a, this is an interesting change of paradigm because traditionally what police forces would use would be something like carrying out a DDoS attack is illegal in the Netherlands under the criminal code, blah, 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 under this article. It is worth to mention that in our research, the target population were potential DDoSers. So in this case, it made more sense to tell them you're ruining the fun for your friends than the sanction is going to be huge. Uh, this has impactful consequences on it. You're switching guardians. What do you mean? If the original message is that the the enforcer of the law here is the police, we will catch you and we will apply X dimension of harm. The the guardian in that case is the police. Ah, uh, exactly. Yeah. And if the the offenders don't believe yeah. that those guardians are capable in actually detecting them, you switch to a different group who are probably going to work out who it was that stopped their game from being played. Yeah. And yeah. are not going to be happy. Excellent point. So. Here we switch from a formal guardianship to an informal guardianship, which in some contexts we know works best, like, for example, in the context of schools or with adolescents. It might be better to invoke informal guardianship, such as people from the school, peers. The influence of peers is, is, is very high at that age. So if we are targeting youngsters, then it might be the right way to go. Well, at least it generated the most engagement. So it made people click more compared to the times they view the ad. So it's a click-through ratio. But we still don't know if this is the one that actually reduces cybercrime the most. Right. And this is also interesting because there might be 
an ad that generates more engagement, but then it may be the case that the other one, perhaps the literary one, is the one that reduces crime the most. What I think is interesting is that you're using data collection and aggregation tools that are that are already there. And perhaps this is one of those things with digital natives making digital native use of technology and sort of living off of the land, so to speak, using the things that are already mm -hmm. available in cyberspace. I was wondering about your, your thoughts about using those kinds of technologies, using the data that's already been collected and the aggregators that are already creating these, these wealths of information. We know that we are not able to process all the data that we generate. There are petabytes of data generated every minute worldwide. So why investing more time in collecting more data when the data is actually out there? Why not just find where the data is? Someone else collected it for you. Someone else provided the infrastructure, in this case, Google, a company with more resources than you will ever have, why not trust them and let's see what they have to offer. Check the data. What can we do with it? And in this case, well, we're using online ads. Google Ads is an engine that allows us to advertise our messages in a web browser that is used by millions. So we are reaching a lot of people that might be at risk of committing cybercrime. Um, why not use them? And I think there's um, a lot of prejudice about private companies and the way they collect data, which sometimes might be just fair judgments. I'm not going to get into that. But the fact is that they have valuable data for us to understand only behavior of people. And as long as you yourself as a, as a researcher, you comply with the ethical legal standards that you are required to do, why not using their data? There's plenty. And it definitely, in this case, collected the measures that we wanted. So to us, it was pretty straightforward. And this is the second point. There are already plenty of law enforcement agencies around the world using these technologies. They already saw the value of them to try to understand only behavior of people before we did. We are still wondering uh, whether we should use it or whether we should not, whether the data is detailed enough, they are already using it. So they are ahead of us. And from this position in which we are behind, we are not able to support them in the process of applying knowledge to societal problems. And I think one of the things we have to do is get more in, in touch with law enforcement agencies, with practitioners, see what tools they are using, what kind of data they are collecting, and see if we can use that same very data, the same very tools they're using to try to measure how they work, what are the strengths, where are the flaws? So maybe in the future, when they use Google Ads again, they know that the right data or the data that captures the measure that they want to measure is not this data set that allows you to export, but this other one that is under this other section. But the only way to know that is actually getting your hands dirty and doing research with this. So it's part of the exploration process of a scientist. We have to know what's out there before we make any further judgment, right? And I'm, I'm very grateful in this research because we were expecting very tough reviews, especially at addressing the, the methods that we use because we use Google Ads. Actually, we got pretty positive reviews overall. And the concerns about the methodology that we used were fair concerns, like about, for example, uh, one of the issues that reviews raised was how do, you, how do you know that this Google Ads system is able to filter bot activity as they claim? I mean, in this case, uh, we could only say something like, yeah, 
we didn't see any bot activity in our data, but it's, it's, it's a fair point. There is not a lot of documentation in this, in this particular model. By the way, Google has a lot of documentation on Google Ads. So if all the researchers out there want to give this a try, they should take a look at Google Help because there are plenty of pages that explain how Google Ads work in great detail. But it is true that Google could do better in some aspects, like, for example, being more transparent about this anti-bot algorithm because we couldn't really, we couldn't actually find any information about it. We could only, you know, make our uh, writing clear that we were relying on Google's claims in this case and that we didn't see any bot activity in our data. And honestly, if, if there were any bots, because the way the data was assigned to groups, it would have affected the engagement on all ads the same way. So it wouldn't have altered the results in any case. And I think this was enough to convince uh, this particular viewer. But the point is that data collection procedures should be as transparent as possible. And we need to dig into that to understand them well, so that we know when, you, when we use them, we know what we're doing. Interesting to note that there is practical application already of a lot of the data that's available online. And there are plenty of news stories about law enforcement and other organizations purchasing data or making use of different data sets. And I think you highlight an interesting role for academia in taking a look under the hood of what's going on with this, these data sets because a, a law enforcement organization, for example, is necessarily very practically oriented. And so they're looking for the real-world result of what they can do with it. Scholars, on the other hand, because of that peer review process that you mentioned, are very much looking at the data itself and the types of analysis that it can bear. I like The analogy I'm thinking is that having a race team of engineers going over an engine for their, their Le Mans car might make the actual car that makes it to the road a little bit practically more effective, but you wouldn't expect the mechanic trying to make sure it runs on Tuesday so you can get to a meeting to be doing <laughs> that, that kind of work. I think it just it highlights a very interesting role for academics in making sure that data-driven applications are actually mechanically sound, that they're, that they're sound in terms of the processes mm -hmm. and the data that's being used. Definitely, if data collected by Google is going to inform policy, and in this case, crime prevention campaigns, well, someone has to look what the data looks like and whether it is suitable to actually inform policy. Because if not, well, we have to tell them. And, and if yes, we also have to tell them. So either way, uh, I think there is a niche for us in, in looking at this kind of stuff and providing support to end users that make use of this data. And who better to do that than academics? I can't think of anyone more appropriate. Probably the people from the companies themselves. <laughs> <laughs> trust me, trust me, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never find more accurate data. <laughs> what have you got coming up soon? What's the, the things that it's interesting for you in the near future? Oh, one had when continuing doing research on this, this campaign actually expanded. So we are actually currently measuring whether these ads had any effect on the volume of recorded DDoS attacks. First results to come in secret, by the way. Oh, great. Or first preliminary look. And, and then I'm also interested in this part about advancing theory. So now I'm looking into how people move online. For environmental community, it's very important to understand how people move in, in geographical spaces. So now I want to take a look at, okay, how people is moving online. And we just pre-registered a study in OSF 
in which we basically test how a convenient sample of hackers move online when they are attempting a website defacement. So what are the places they visited, when they do so, in which sequence of steps, how successful they are. Is this related to IT skills? Is this related to previous experience in cybercrime offending? It, it took us like a year to set up the whole thing because um, to collect the data, we set up um, a capture the flag exercise in a computer lab with a controlled environment, virtual machines. And these, these computers had monitoring software installed in them. So we were basically able to measure, to collect their keystrokes, to capture screenshots of their activity, all sorts of things. We had to process all these data, and now we are looking into it. And very promising. I'm, I'm very excited. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that when you, when you finally get it written up. Meanwhile, you can take a look at the pre-registration. It's out there. We make a brief description of the rationale of the study, hypothesis. We publish a codebook of the data we have. So yeah, stay tuned. Awesome. Well, thanks for chatting with us. And yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you for the invitation. My pleasure. If you're involved in cyber, you're often expected to answer questions on everything from why CPU pins are gold to whether you need Wi-Fi 6 for Web 2.0. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert. And we happen to have cornered a cybersecurity consultant. Dominic Vogel is a founder and chief strategist of Cyber.sc, a Canadian cybersecurity consulting firm, and a co-host of a weekly podcast called Cybersecurity Matters. Mr. Vogel is, among other things, a nice guy and willing to politely answer even my most stupid of questions. So we'll take advantage of that and we'll ask him this. If I'm a business owner and I already pay someone to do IT, why would I bother paying you? You're just IT security. I already have IT people. I'm going to resist the urge to reach through Zoom and grab you, Michael. <laughs> but, you know, that was very jarring the way that you said that. It's something which I'd say irritates me to no end. And one of the most prevailing myths when it comes to cybersecurity, uh, especially among small and mid-sized business community, is that cybersecurity is not IT. And IT is not cybersecurity. You know, when I hear people say, oh, well, we have an IT guy or we have an IT service provider, right? We have that taken care of. That is, again, just looking at cybersecurity through a technical lens. And it's so much more than that. If you could have had that mindset back in 1995, heck, you have had that in 2005, you would have been okay. But as an organization in business, if you're not treating cybersecurity as a risk, that's what I prefer to call it, cyber risk, if you're not giving it the same type of oversight and guidance as an executive that you do with personnel risk, financial risk, operational risk, then your organization is doomed to uh, deal with a massive, massive cyber incident. You're in the position of trying to run a business and also serve the common good at the same time. So how do you balance the needs of a business with the needs of serving a, a community in terms of improving cybersecurity? Yeah, you know, and, and to me, it's all about what I refer to as an abundance mindset. I recognize that if I'm if I take a used car salesperson approach and try to just anyone who reaches out, uh, try to sell them our services or sell them uh, something, I'm really no different than you know our our, our competition. You know, and those are people that you know made me feel jaded. You know, as a in, in my corporate days. Uh, to me, I recognize that when people reach out. Rather than trying to sell them, focus on that notion of just helping them. Maybe it's just information. Maybe it's some uh, pointing them to one of our podcast episodes. Maybe it's pointing them to uh, some material that we have on our website. Maybe it's connecting them with someone who's better suited to be able to help them. 
I have found that by not chasing money, that our organization makes more money in the long run. I mean, it allows us to have very long-term relationships with our customers and clients rather than just treating them as transactions by treating them as people and focusing on the relationships. It sets us up for sustainable success. So that to me is, I think it really comes down to, to, to mindset. Thank you again to Dr. Asir Moneva for his time and for the interesting insights into making choices around research and why we should keep up with new methods of gathering and analyzing data. Links for papers mentioned will of course be in the show notes. Thanks as well to Dominic Vogel, and he assures me that he'll be back next episode to help answer another question for us. But in the meantime, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's really only made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com and talk to me at cybercrimeology on Twitter. <laughs>